Well, how does Paul the Apostle tell us that we are declared righteous before this God of justice of whom we have sung from the 69th Psalm? Well, we come now to Romans 4, uh, verses 9 through 17. Let me remind you that we've looked at the earlier portion of chapter 4 in which he focuses upon the fact that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he also pointed to David. Uh, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now in verses 9 through 17, the apostle is going to work out some of those themes that have been found uh, in the earlier portion of the fourth chapter. Let's briefly pray together. And now, Father, as we come to this great theme once again, and the mind of Paul the Apostle is so, um, so incredible to follow, we ask that you will enable us to get into the mind of Paul, and in so doing, into the mind of Christ. Uh, this was revealed to the Apostle Paul. You used his personality, you used his brilliance, you used his vocabulary, But, Father, it is your word, and we pray that you will help us now to understand it, and we pray that we will be mightily encouraged as your people by what we study here tonight, and that those among us who do not know Christ may be redeemed and saved from their sins, their awful, awful sins, just as you have saved us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 9, this is the word of God. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, this is very intricate. Let's attempt to understand the mind of Paul. We have seen that he's pointed to Abraham. He has pointed to David. And he has said there is only one way. There is only one way. There has always been only one way that sinners can be received, accepted as righteous before a holy God. And that is through Jesus Christ, who looking ahead would shed his blood, to whom we now look back, who shed his blood for our justification. 
Now in verses 9 through 17, Paul answers some arguments. What about circumcision? What about the place of the law? What do we do with this? Martin Lloyd-Jones in his unspeakably great uh, exposition of the book of Romans, multi-volumed sermons on Romans, says that the Apostle Paul speaks of the tenacious and, and subtle character of unbelief. It is the whole tragedy of mankind. Now listen to this. It is the whole tragedy of mankind that it keeps on guarding against its own salvation. Man is always anxious to claim a little credit for himself. He resents the doctrine that salvation is solely and entirely the free gift of God. Now that's true, and that's why the Apostle Paul has to work out in this intricate way answers to objections that were offered in his day that are still in one way or another offered in our own. Now the first thing I think we need to see to understand this chapter is circumcision and justification. How do they relate? Circumcision and justification. So you'll notice here in verse 9 that there's a question. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Put it another way, is it for the Jew only or also for the Gentile? Uh, For God's special people or also for the world? And Paul directs us to the Old Testament narrative and in verse 10 he answers, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. Now that's very important. Hold that thought and notice the reasons for circumcision that the Apostle Paul underscores in verses 11 and 12. He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, the reasons for circumcision, it was a sign of the righteousness that Abraham had received 14 years prior The righteousness that he received 14 years prior. In other words, it was a seal, it was an authentication. Paul never demeans the purpose of circumcision, but circumcision played no part whatsoever in his justification before God. Abraham added nothing to his acceptance with God. Circumcision added nothing to his acceptance with God. It sealed and authenticated God's promise to him. God graciously gave it to assure him of the promise. This is not just a matter of temporal order. The whole point Paul is making by emphasizing the temporal order is this. Circumcision played no part whatsoever in the justification of Abraham. You don't have to qualify for God's grace. And the Judaizers in the New Testament era turned the meaning of circumcision on its head when they taught that circumcision was an essential ingredient of acceptance with God. Who then are Abraham's children? Well, the purpose according to the second part of 11, verse 11, is to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised 
and in verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, circumcised or uncircumcised? If they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Abraham is their father. Circumcision is nothing apart from faith. So they missed the whole point of circumcision. Circumcision pointed to the promise and authenticated the promise, but it was not a condition for the promise. Circumcision contributes nothing to justification. So you'll remember back in chapter 2 of Romans, in verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now this should thrill your soul. Not because we're caught in the trap of thinking that circumcision contributes to our justification. But faith in Christ is the issue here. And there are those denominations that still teach in various ways that baptism or other such rites contribute in some way to our acceptance with God. Now again, just as the Apostle Paul never minimized the importance of circumcision as a sign and seal authenticating the promise, so we do not minimize the place of baptism in the life of the Christian as a sign and seal authenticating the promise. But it's a sign and seal authenticating it is not the promise itself. Baptism has never justified and has never regenerated. It does not save the soul. And so baptism, church membership, do not justify. Baptism is a sign, a seal, authenticating God's promise, but it is never the ground of our relationship with God. And please get this, the only ground, I mean the only ground of our acceptance with God is Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. Plus nothing. There is nothing else. Only Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so he does not demean and he does not overvalue. Just as we do not demean baptism, nor do we overvalue. Because baptism, of course, corresponds in the New Covenant era to the meaning of circumcision in the Old. Now, having then looked at circumcision and justification, the second thing that we see as we move along in Paul's mind, his intricate thinking, is the relationship of law to justification. Remember, Abraham was viewed by the Jews as a proto-law keeper. And so when they thought of justification and the contribution that law they thought made to justification, they looked all the way back to Abraham for it. But the promise is not by law. Verse 13 For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And of course he points to Genesis 15. Long before the law was given, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The promise did not come to Abraham by law, it was received by faith. And this is just a matter of looking at the narrative. When Abraham received the promise, it was not through the law, but it was by grace. Sheer, unadulterated promise, there was no law. And so our justification is not based upon conditions. God does not come to us and say, fulfill conditions in order to be accepted by me. Promise was given before circumcision was given. 
and before the law was given on Sinai. Promise was received by faith. And so he says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the character of law means that righteousness, remember here it means acceptance, it means a perfect record. The character of the law means that righteousness could not come by the law. But the Apostle Paul gives another argument in this section. You can hear all of the questions that must have been pinging around as he preached the doctrine of justification in Jewish context. Another argument is found here in verse 14. Look at verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are made heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Why? Why is that true? The answer is because the law is not interested in faith. Law is not interested in faith. Law is interested in performance. The law is interested in do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. The law is interested in commandment. It is interested in condemnation. And so in this great matter of justification... Law and faith are opposed to one one another as far as the East is from the West. As far as acceptance is concerned, law and faith are opposed to one another. And also, the law voids the promise. Why does the law void the promise? If you believe that you are accepted by God through your own good works, which is essentially what he means by the law, It makes void the promise. Why? Because no one can keep the law. If God said, here's the promise, if you keep the law, why make the promise? It voids the promise. But then in verse 15, he gives another argument. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The promise then cannot be by law because law brings wrath. Law produces wrath, which is the opposite of promise. Promise means Christ, gospel, salvation, joy, peace, new heavens and new earth. Law means punishment, condemnation, what our sin deserves. And that's what he means then when he says that law brings wrath. Well, if law brings wrath, it cannot bring salvation by grace through faith. The purpose of the law was never to save, but to point to our need of a Redeemer. The law points out sin with specificity. The law says you have sinned in this, in that, in this. The law is good. The law is holy and righteous and spiritual and good. But I am not, and neither are you. And so he adds, where there is no law, there is no transgression. By which he means the law shows up sin. This was his point back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, when he said, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
Again, think of Machen's comment that a low view of the law makes a man a legalist in religion, but a high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. Law knows no grace. I mean, in this arena of justification, law knows no grace whatsoever. So to sum up what Paul is saying here in this very intricate argument, promise has not come by law, and having shown this, he now turns to something very positive. And that is, thirdly, the wonder of grace. (laughs) The wonder of grace. And we find it in verses 16 and 17. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now this is quite wonderful. This is the therefore to which he now turns. All is by faith and not by law. Of faith that it might be by grace. Why? Because grace is unmerited favor and that's his whole point. Law points to merit and demerit. Just as, as, as we look at the law and it points to our sin, it points to the requirement of merit which we cannot meet. And so just as law and works go together, grace and faith go together. In chapter 11 of Romans verse 6, he underscores that again in uh, similar words in chapter 11 verse 6 by saying, if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. And so you cannot match up the works of merit, human merit, with, with grace. It's like mixing oil and water. They simply do not mix. Under the law, there is merit, earning, and compensation, which no man can meet. Under grace, there is no claim on anything I do to merit my acceptance with God. Only by way of faith, only the only way that God alone can have the glory, according to Paul, is if it is by grace through faith. When you introduce your works into this matter of acceptance with God, it detracts from the glory of God. We, might, we, we, we may not even boast about, about our faith, because according to Paul in Ephesians 2, that faith is a gift of God. And so if salvation were by the law, who could be saved? And in verse 16, when he says... That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He is saying to us that those under the Mosaic economy and Gentiles who trust in Christ are saved. The point for us is very simple. Your background does not matter. Uh, There are two people. One comes from a religious family. One comes from an irreligious background. But the fundamental need is the same. It doesn't matter what your background is. The need is the same of acceptance with God through grace. And so it is by faith so that it may be by grace. And that is why we go into all the world and preach the same message to everyone because the need is the same for everyone. 
But also, as we move along, we see, fourthly, grace through faith and assurance. Grace through faith and assurance. Paul adds, by grace through faith, so that we can be sure. Now notice the language of assurance in verse 16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You hear the language of guarantee, the language of assurance. And so Paul adds grace through faith so that we can be certain, guaranteed by grace. If it depended on our work, we would all be lost. The only way that we can have assurance is not on the basis, not on the ground of our works, but only on the ground and the basis of God's grace to us through Christ who worked for us on the cross. So believers who struggle with assurance need to turn to this great theme of justification. Paul really takes this home in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So he says, go back to Abraham. Abraham was told by God, Abram, look up into the stars. Look up into the sky. Count the stars if you possibly can. And Abraham stood in the presence of his God, in whom he believed, and believing God, God credited to him the righteousness of Christ who was to come. And he says to him, so shall your offspring be. Before you were born and believed, Abraham by God's decree was the father of all who believed. Abraham was old. Sarah was old and childless. They were past the years of childbearing, and yet God promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. How could this happen? Because God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the end of verse 17. God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, this is not a proof text for the Word of Faith movement, though it is used by them. That's not the point. It points to the omnipotence of God in saving His people from our sins. God gives life to the dead. In other words, we are condemned under the law of God, but God can do what man cannot. John Murray rightly says in his commentary on Romans, In Scripture, this, God raising the dead, this is regarded as the peculiar index of God's omnipotence. And indeed, it points ahead to a greater resurrection, the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, He calls into existence the things which are not, because He is the Creator, because of His omnipotence, He can save by grace. How can a sinner be saved from sin? The simple answer that is given here among all of the intricacies is grace. Now everybody here knows that. But do you? How many of you this past week have fallen into the thought that God accepts me on the basis of what I do? Or perhaps rejects me because I have not lived up to His standard? Should we long to live up to the standard of God's Word? Absolutely. Does God reject you when you don't? No. We're saved by grace, folks. Through faith in Christ, 
He died for your sins. You didn't die for your sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. You didn't do that. He died for you. He shed His blood. He purchased you unto Himself. Our acceptance with God is purely and solely on the ground of what Jesus did for sinners. It is by grace to be received by faith alone. So how can a sinner be saved? By grace. Who you are, who you have been, just doesn't matter. God doesn't say, clean yourself up before you come. What your background has been doesn't matter. Justification is by grace through faith. And when a sinner is called by Him and granted saving faith, and that faith is put in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only object of saving faith, then nothing can stop Him. And His promise is sure because He is the God who raises the dead. So when you go out into this world and you live this week, and you take these truths that have become almost commonplace to you because you're privileged to read them and you're privileged to hear them, when so many people in the world are absolutely confused about this very matter, will you remember, nothing can stop His sovereign free grace that has saved me from continuing to save me and keeping me for time and for eternity. His promise is sure. But there's one question that often comes up when we look at a passage such as this and we hear about faith. And often I sit down with people as a pastor and in one way or another what comes through is this. Yes, God is a God of grace. Yes, He saves by grace through faith. But pastor, my faith is so incredibly weak. Let me read to you from the Puritan Thomas Watson. Listen up. But I fear I have no faith. It is so weak. If you have faith, though but in its infancy, be not discouraged. For one, a little faith is faith, as a spark of fire is fire. Two, a weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. As a weak hand can tie the knot in marriage as well as a strong one, she in the gospel who but touched Christ fetched virtue from him. Thirdly, the promises are not made to strong, to, to strong faith, to strengthen faith, but the, the promises are not made to strong faith, but are made to true. His point is the promises are not made to strong faith, but to true faith. The promise does not say, he who has a giant faith, who can believe God's love through a frown, who can rejoice in affliction, who can work wonders, remove mountains, stop the mouth of lions, shall be saved. But whosoever believes, be his faith never so small. A reed is but weak, especially when it is bruised, yet a promise is made to it. A bruised reed shall he not break. Fourthly, a weak faith may be fruitful. Weakest things multiply most. The vine is a weak plant, but it is fruitful. 
the thief on the cross who has newly con- was newly converted but was weak in grace. But how many precious clusters grew upon that tender plant. He chided his fellow thief, Dost thou not fear God? He judged himself, We indeed suffer justly. He believed in Christ when he said, Lord. He made a heavenly prayer, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Weak Christians have strong affections. How strong is the first love, which is after the first planting of faith? And fifthly, the weakest believer is a member of Christ as well as the strongest. And the weakest member of the body mystic shall not perish. Christ will cut off rotten members, but not weak members. Therefore, Christian, do not be discouraged. God, who would have us receive them that are weak in faith, will not himself refuse those who are weak in faith. So yes, your faith may be weak, but it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It is the strength of the Christ in whom you have put your faith. It is the strength of the grip of the blood-stained hand of the Savior upon you that saves and keeps you. Let us pray. And now, Heavenly Father, we briefly looked at an intricate passage, and we pray that you will help us to understand its depth and meaning, but especially that we who are indeed weak in faith so often might remember it's not the strength of our faith that saves, but it's the sovereignty of the grace of God in Christ that saves. Oh, thank you for what he has done for us poor sinners. And help us as we come to this passage to remember that our acceptance is based upon what Christ has done, not upon what we do. And Father, we give you all the praise, because when we accept this truth, we know that we are honoring the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and we know that all the glory, all the glory, from first to last, goes to your great name. Oh God, thank you, thank you that Jesus took the wrath, that Jesus is the justifier, that grace through faith is your gift. In Jesus' name, amen.